welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week we're sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. This week on the podcast, we have a man I first met at the Royal Smithfield Show nearly 30 years ago, who has gone on to become one of the top limousine breeders in Britain and Ireland, William Smith from the Millbrook Herd in Oldcastle, County Meath in Ireland. Uh, William, welcome to the podcast. It's been a while. Uh, it's been a while, Andy. Uh, thank you very much for having me and good afternoon. And is that right, William? We first met at Smithfield in the early 90s, probably in the Mowbray Court in the bar, I guess. Uh, would have been there, yeah. I don't want to admit to it, but probably. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I would have attended Smithfield in the late late 80s, maybe, very early 90s. I'm not so sure what year the Bandit won, but I was there that year anyway. I think the Bandit won in 89. And uh, that would have been my first trip to Smithfield. Some show, though, Smithfield, wasn't it? What an eye-opener for, for everybody, for sure. And uh, hey, it, uh, it, the Bandit was some beast as well, wasn't he? Did you have a good trip over? <laughs> yeah, I went over to meet uh, actually a school friend that was working on the buildings in London at the same time as putting him through business school. So um, it turned into a, a typical Irish weekend. Uh, we went to Smithfield, but there was lots of drink involved as well. So we had a great time, you know, and... Uh, Look, at being an avid stockman myself, uh, it was great to see. Uh, I, I grew up reading the Scottish farmers, the Eckneys and all them people in the 70s, or Jim Donnell and all them people that showed them fantastic shot across the years. So to see them in the flesh and to see them in reality and to see the stockmanship involved was a real eye-opener for me. Um, it was a real buzz, to be honest, and uh, really, really enjoyed the weekend over there. It's an inspiration, isn't it? And and um, a inspiration that you learn from. But as you said, it's compulsory. A bit of drinks involved as well. It was such a crack that that, that show. While we met originally in Smithfield, we met later than when you were walking in at the ploughing match. Uh -huh. You used to come over and you were walking for Richie's at the time. Uh -huh. And I can remember actually getting a good few clipping tips off you. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I did do a demonstration. I think now you say that. Yeah. So. Uh -huh. It, 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 it actually was more, there was more to it actually than just meeting in the bar, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, just moving on then, um, William, your father is John, I think, and your brother Mark, and, and, and you guys farm all together there at, uh, at Old Castle? No, um, my father uh, was John, he's deceased now in 2016, and okay, uh, Dad and I farmed together for 35 years or so, from a, from a left school, maybe at 14 or 15. Mark doesn't farm with us. He's uh, an auctioneer by trade. Uh, he has his own business in Dublin, uh, mainly um, uh, houses and that, so and letting and that property. But he shows with me and is always showing with me. So um, he likes to be there for the limelight. And uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it's it's good to have him to be honest on board. He's he's uh, a very good cattleman in his own right and uh, looking at. As somebody once said to me, uh, who shall name be nameless, said that he's better looking than I am, so it's easy to put him <laughs> on the better category. Uh, you should put, uh, yeah, put, put the better looking ones with, with the worst cattle. That's kind of how you balance it up, isn't it? But, uh, yeah. And uh, you just started out with Simmentals. I think your father had Herefords originally, but didn't, you just started out with Simmentals before, um, um, in your earlier days, showing those, I guess, uh, William? Um. No, not really, actually. I started showing Herefords. My dad, when he moved to this farm in the early 50s, uh, he would have bought his first Hereford cattle and would have been predominantly a Hereford herd right up until the late 70s. And 
He was also one of the original importers of uh, Seminole cattle into Ireland in 1970, I think. Uh, I actually remember the, the first five heifers arriving off the, uh, from Spike Island. They arrived onto the farm sometime in August, and uh, that was an exciting time for us. But uh, predominantly Herefords, I grew up with Herefords, would have been honed in on terms of reading about the Vern and the Haven and um, studying them books, the English stud books, the Irish Hereford Breed journals as well. Like, you know, so I probably would know more about cattle at that time maybe than I know of cattle today, to be honest. <laughs> they were they were halcyon days for the Herefords, weren't they, going back then? And just go, just going back to the Sementals, we spoke to um, Norman Robson earlier on, and of course Billy Robson was a man who brought a lot of Sementals into into Ireland there would be around about the same time, same import perhaps? Around the same time, yeah. Dad dad and, and uh, Billy Robson were great friends and, and uh, always, you know, would have travelled together a lot in that world. So, I mean, the Robsons would be family friends going back, I suppose, to 50 years than it is now, really, you know. Mm -hmm. And you'd, you'd have shown a few fat stock cattle as well, uh, William. Did you get the bug in doing that side of it? The, to be honest, uh, from my own perspective, the fat stock people always maybe looked down their nose a bit at pedigree breeders and uh, felt that they were the the cheese to bring out cattle. Um, so I, I dabbled a little bit in it as well. Um, not so much, but off and on by times, if I had a good calf, I would uh, bring him to the local shows and maybe Carrick and Shannon. I think we won the limousines in Carrick a couple of times. We would have won the All-Ireland Calf Championship. We would have one class of Tullamore with commercials, but not haven't really got serious about it. But uh, it is it is in the pipeline. It is in the plans that uh, Mark and myself are going to take on the commercial job in the next uh, few years. So we're looking forward to the challenge of that. Fortunately, COVID has put a bit of a, a halt on that for the last year or two. But we we are looking forward to taking on that challenge. That's a big that's a big world to step into and an expensive world to step into, but I guess you'll be looking to breed your own and it's become very specialist, hasn't it, the commercial show world now. And a lot of great commercial cattle down there in Ireland now, going back years back. I can remember there were a lot of sort of big backhands and lacking in the loin, but I mean there's, there's some great cattle coming out of Ireland now. Uh, abs absolutely. Yeah, I mean I suppose back in the eighties and nineties maybe the cattle here would have had more back end and maybe not as balanced as the UK cattle or not as finished where I think it's probably maybe come together a lot in the last number of years. And I suppose that's through the influence of some of the Scottish and English judges coming over, the like of the McPhersons, Archie McGregor, Hugh Dunlop, Billy Glazebrooks, you know, them people coming over and judging cattle. Like, you know, they have had an influence on the way we turn out our commercial cattle and, and for the better, I think, to be honest. No, you're, you're right, and I know Donald talks very highly about a lot of cattle he's brought out of Ireland from the likes of Pierce and McNamee, and and, uh, and of course the small boys as well. They're they're, they're having a, making a specialist job of it now to produce these uh, these good show calves. Let's move on, uh, William, to the limousines, for which you're better known. And uh, you started the limousine, I think, in your late teens, maybe early twenties. Tell us uh, what year that was, and uh, who got you into those. Uh, I started in when I was twenty-one. I wanted to breed a herd of cattle myself. I've been working at home for five or six years at that stage. And uh, we were very friendly with the late William Mulligan, which of course was one of the original importers of limousine cattle into Northern Ireland and, and the whole of Ireland really. Um, of course, 
Jim as well that would have worked with many herds as well. So like the Mulligans would be a stock family through and through. Robbie as well, of course, would be known both in the Texas world and the Frisian world. So uh, he was a very good friend of Dad's and would have stayed over on numerous occasions. So we always talked very highly of the limousines and, and uh, it was a breed that I decided to myself to take a, a punter. And of course, himself and Jim Quayle, of course, were the first herds in there, and uh, and and herds are right at the top there. So you you got you got a good tutor there, that's for sure. And uh, where where was your first? I think it was four cows you started with. Am I right, William? Uh, where where would you find those? Uh, no, I bought. Um, we went to Joe McGrath of the Curragh Grange herd. Uh, Joe would have been one of the original importers as well, and uh, Jim Mulligan would have worked in it for a number of years. So we went down there and I bought two heifer calves. And in calf heifer, and I put my eye on a French cow. Now she was extremely storish at the time. But I liked what I saw, and you must remember that I, that I was probably coming from having bred semihull. So while I might have been looking for the extreme shape that the limousine had, I, I probably was looking for that little bit of semihull power within the limousine cattle. And and I, I put that down really to the success of the herd is that looking with a seminal eye at the original cattle that I bought, if that makes sense to you. That makes absolute um, sense, yeah. And, and I can see that that, uh, that extra power, and certainly with some of those imported cows, they would lack that bit of power and size as well. So you sourced, sourced the right ones by the sound of that. So we were back and we bought her, and it was a cow named Tulip. She was a French cow. And, and uh, again, as I say, she was probably, if you look at her today, she was seminal in type. But... When we put English type bulls in our, which would be we would, some of the early bulls we would have used was Oakley Politician. And we got a, no, a number of very good daughters off her. And then we were back with Talent again, which was another tremendous female breeder that was in the Ronick herd at the time. Yeah. And uh, that probably was the foundation for the success of the herd, to be true, to be true, truth about it. Like, you know, and uh, one of the things I've always been is. I probably would be better known as being a female breeder than a bull breeder, but at the same time, I feel that um, the strength of females within the herd has always been so important to me. And I, I, I think I, I'd always prefer to breed a really good female than a really good bull because your female will leave your legacy, whereas yeah. your bull will yeah. get the as we'll go on to it, and of course, if you do, if you are a female breeder and you do sell bulls, then they tend to go on and breed uh, breed females as well. And uh, I, I'm going to move on a little bit. You'll, we'll fill in some gaps in a minute. But you, you had the bottle to uh, come over to the Royal Show with uh, with one of your early breeds, uh, a bull called Millbrook Lancelot uh, at the Royal Show. What, what year was that, uh, William? Well, it actually wasn't me that showed them at the Royal Show. We had we had sold them the spring earlier. Uh, it was uh, probably was '99, I think. Lancelot won the Royal. Uh, it was Crawford Brothers, uh, Herbie Crawford and his sons Raymond and Stephen. They owned the bull at the time. Uh, the story with Lancelot is actually we brought him to a sale in Ross Grey. Would have been one of the early sales for the limited breed here. And uh, had two bulls in it. had Lancelot and a bull called Nave. They were both out of, uh, of course, the famous Broadmeadows Cannon. But uh, Lancelot was one of the youngest calves in the in the sale. I think he was just, he wasn't even 12 months at the time. Uh, but a beautiful, beautiful calf that had a lot of just had a lot of style and looked to be going to make a really, really good bull. Uh, so he won his class, the oldest class in it, and we won the oldest class in it. The sale was it's quite a good sale. I think the top of the sale was 3,800 at the time. And I said to Dad, uh, I won't sell this calf less than 4,500. So 
there was a bit of a debate in the pin about it anyway, and he was he was the last calf into the ring, and he was at he was at four thousand, and uh, I know I shook my head, George Chandler, and you just could feel the buzz of deflation around the ring that people thought I was absolutely mad. So, certainly, my dad had a bit of a debate in the ring about it. Uh, people maybe would have thought that I got caught on the wrong foot, but there was a man, um, Simbo, or, or was there? Was it Graham? Of the symbol heard, and he bid four thousand two hundred. So, uh, being cocky or arrogant, or whatever you like to call it, I said no. I said the price of the bull is four and a half thousand. I walked out with the bull. Uh, I can tell you that was probably the longest drive home from Roscoe with me dad that I've ever t- undertaken. It was cool. It was a very very cool reception. Uh-huh. However, I was proved right after because the bull did. Uh, by the end of the summer, he was winning. He won several major shows and won the, was male champion of reserve supreme to a heifer we had at the Tullamore show and subsequently Herbie Crawford brought him uh, and he went on to win the, the Boat Balmoral and the Royal show and he was a member of the first limousine pair to win the book trophy so that was that was a great start for us you know and, and uh, he won the book did he I didn't realise that who, who did he pair who did he pair up with he the paired up with Ronick Ronick uh, Janita I think oh right okay yeah so and I think it was uh, a woman called Muriel Johnston judge, judge uh-huh. and, um, um, so that's going back a bit now but so it's nice to have that you know that you you bred one of one of the first actual limousine pair to win the Burke Trophy in the UK. Yeah. Of course, people nowadays and younger people wouldn't even realise what the Burke Trophy was. But back in the day, the Burke Trophy was the absolute icing on the cake for pedigree breeders of all breeds. Spe- spectacular event, wasn't it? And I know Muriel, obviously she was a Galloway breeder, but a great judge of all sorts of stock. And uh, they'd have to be right and straight for her to, to put those forward. But it was just a great show. I assume you came over for it, uh, William. But it was just a fantastic event. Uh, but Dad and myself were there, and I—it's—I've I, it, rarely ever since got such an elation, such a buzz. And being as was a young breeder, it was just absolutely fantastic. It was—it yeah. it was something that really, really special for me, you know. And uh, look, at, we actually weren't there for the day the the Buck Trophy uh, was on, but we got a call from—I uh, think it was John Logan actually of the British Society telling us that they had they had just won the Buck. So that was nice on the day, now to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I was there. I saw it myself, and uh, and brilliant. And then you you carried on. Obviously, that gave you. I mean, it's one of your earlier breeding. And uh, did you have a an on farm sale a little bit later and sold a, a, um, an animal for a record, a breed record? Just tell me about that. What was that about? We had an on farm sale in two thousand and three, uh, and we sold uh, some of the region of thirty eight heifers to average somewhere around uh, around seven thousand, I think, at the time. It was a uh, a phenomenal sale. Uh, the record price for Limousin Ireland had been set three weeks before that and was at 15,000. I think we had somewhere in the region of six or seven cattle would have uh, exceeded the, the record price, including that that young cow. Or she was a two-year-old heifer in calf time, Millbrook Senorita. Uh, she was, again, from the Broadmeadows Cannon Line, which was a cow called Catherine, which bred very, very well for me now, I have to say. And... Uh, she uh, was sold to Crawford Brothers. Unfortunately, they lost her with brucellosis um, a year or so later. But uh, they they got the value out of her, I think. So, yeah, look That's at it. It was unfortunate, but she was a very, very good animal. Then. That's a shame to hear that. But uh, I think at 42,000, uh, she held the breed record for, for some time. 
Well, I think it still does, actually, yeah. would you believe? Uh, yeah, it's, and, and, and it held, uh, actually, all pedigree breed record up until there this year were a bull of Gareth Bains and Senegal going in 50,000. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I tend not to dwell in the past. I tend to move on myself now, so I, I don't tend to look back on that. Like it's, it's, yeah. uh, Let's just move on, and we'll go on to talk your more recent in a minute. But, I mean, what early bulls would you say that's influenced the herd at Millbrook? Which ones stamped the cows, the memorable ones that have taken you on forward? Well, as I did say, Oakley politician talent, um, uh, and then of course in the later years you had the, the Broadmothers Cannon. Along with that, then we used uh, a mixture of French bulls, uh, Duff and Feynant. The Irish society at the time were bringing in French bloodline to keep the maternal aspects within the breed. So we found that crossing both the uh, British genetics and the French genetics actually were giving us quite a good result. So we're getting you know, maybe the best of both worlds. And it was a matter of trying to match and marry. We were always dealing with small numbers, so we were probably more focused on our breeding. It takes time and to, to know what cows is breeding, what type of bulls. You don't get it right all the time. And uh, I definitely would say even today, I don't get it right. But, but it is, that's the interesting thing of pedigree breeding and the challenge that's always out there, you know. Indeed, indeed. You've gone over to France selecting some of those bulls yourself, uh, William. Have you made that trip a few times? Uh, no, I, I was. I made the trip in the early nineties. The society ran a ran a trip to France, and uh, I would have went there. I think it was around ninety four, maybe. And I was back then a couple of times since. I was actually. In 2007, I actually was asked to judge the, at the National Limousine Show in France. I judged the four beef classes. Uh -huh. uh, that was a real highlight and, and uh, a real experience, to be honest. It's uh, a spectacular event, isn't it? And those it's, beef it's, classes are just phenomenal. They're, they're huge classes. Huge classes, 30, 30 you know, plus. Um, I got a bit caught on the hop. I was chatting to Ian Natras of the Greenwood Herd. When the first class was coming in and I was chatting to him about it and it was maybe a bit cocky or whatever, but when I turned around and seen 33 or 4 cattle from two and a half years age to seven years age standing in front of me, uh, I have to say reality hit home very, very quickly. <laughs> and then along with that, then I started down the classes and you had, like you, you would, in, in France you have the sheet of paper, so you have the age of the animal, the number of the animal, that's all you have, really. The name, the age, and the animal, and, and, the, and the number. Mm. You have a glass of wine in the other hand by, by the time you get... Well, no, well, they were wearing peaky caps. So by the time I was maybe down around 10th, I realised, actually, that there was a couple of cattle missing. Yeah. And that I was placing cattle where it wasn't just what I was in the sheet. sheet. So I kind of had a half glance up to, to just to sort myself out and then go again. So... The challenge there was then you, you whittled them down to 15 and then you whittled them down again to 10 mm. and then you gave reasons from 10 forward. Right. So uh, um, with the four classes, we had sort of females over two and a half, females from a year to two and a half, and then the same with the bulls. You had bulls over two and a half and then bulls younger than that from a year to a, to a, to a two-year-old. So. Um, challenge, but a hugely enjoyable experience, mm. and uh, it's one that I actually treasure to this day. And as coincidence has it, actually, I'm going back to France with with our new CEO Rona Murphy and Philip Crow. We're actually going to look at some of the new French 
uh, bulls that we're bringing in for the society and to see the progeny of them in the next, I think it's a month's time or something. So we're looking forward. To, I'm actually looking forward to that now. Yeah. You know. And William, obviously, as well as judging in France, you'll have had the honour of judging in, throughout Ireland and various other places. And are there, are there places that you enjoy judging and, and, uh, and going to? Have you got any favourites there? Um, look, at it, I think as a breeder, you, you always like to be asked to judge some of the major shows. I think it's a great honour and it's a bit great. You know, it is an honour personally to be asked to, to do some of them. Uh, two of the highlights for me would have been the Royal Welsh Show and uh, the Carlisle Bull Sale. Um, when I went, when I did judge the Carlisle Bull Sale, I think it was May 07, it was a huge turnout of bulls, somewhere around 350 bulls, 27 classes. Um, it actually was the first time I've ever stood in Carlisle, so it was a, a bit of a daunting task. Um, at that time, my dad was over with me and, and my brother to give me moral support of anything else. Uh, got on with quite well and was very happy with the end results. I think of the top 18 prices of them, uh, 17 of them were first prize winners. So I, I was actually glad. But it, it was, uh, there's no doubt about it, it's a tough session and I really enjoyed it, you know. Mm -hmm. Is that um, a sale where, of course, where you do get found out? You can... But I think the one thing that you must bring to any show when you're judging is is integrity. Like you know, because there are as many good cattlemen outside the ring as you are inside the ring, and it's it's your opinion. And again, the same as if you're showing it's you. It's the judge's opinion on the day that counts. No, nobody else. Like he's the referee, so you must also respect that as well. So look, at you always get that little bit of feedback every now and again. I think one of the and you have to be nimble on your feet when you do get it. I think they were judging the show, a show in the north one time and I had a heifer standing in third place. And I, I tend to go down the line and explain to the people showing the cattle as to why I placed them where I did. Um, I said to the man, he, he was standing in third place, I says, uh, she was a little bit uh, too rich for me today and, and uh, just didn't have enough of bone. And his comment back to me was, she wasn't half as fat as that ginger spice was. I, uh, I said to him, you're probably right, but I never got the opportunity to judge Ginger Spice, so <laughs> he didn't really know what to say after that. But uh, <laughs> No, judging look at it, a great honour, and uh, I suppose I, I've always taken it as a great honour. I've always taken it as the most, you know, you have to bring that integrity into the ring with you, because as I said already, you have to be very, very fair and respect the people that have presented the cattle in front of you. And I've always looked at it that way, you know. I've always been upfront and given my opinions, so I tend to be outspoken only at the best times. Let's move on from from that spectacular show to another one that's equally or even more spectacular. Of course, it's a is Balmoral and Balmoral and uh, Belfast will always be you know, a special show. And when did you start exhibiting cattle? Did you take the Simmentals there, or did you start there with the Limousins? Uh, would you believe it? Uh, <laughs> and this might sound strange. I've only actually ever exhibited at Balmoral eight times. And um, we started, there was, of course, the border there for a good few years. And when the early limousines could show on and up until the mid 80s, there was no limousine shown at then again for maybe a 20 year period out in the south of Ireland uh, for, for various reasons, mainly uh, mainly health reasons or whatever. So yeah. and, and the border and that. But it started back, I think the, uh, the Southern cattle were allowed back up into Balmoral around 2006, I would think, and then we started the exhibit in 2008. Again, it was my dad, as I say, he was very, very heavily involved with the Royal Dublin Society, and he was uh, he used to be Chief Livestock Steward. Oh. So we would have uh, known all the breeders of all the different breeds 
he would have been very friendly with them and he would have known um, many of the northern people, of course, Jim Quayle, Terry Robinson, the Mulligans, they would have all come down to show at the at the, the spring shows in, in its heyday. So uh, by association, I knew them in terms of that I was a, would have been a teenager hanging around with my dad at the time. So it's, it was by association that I knew all these people. So, And then I would have travelled to Balmore with them uh, all through them years. So it was always an ambition of mine to show at some stage in Balmore if I ever got the opportunity. I just loved the catalogs, the amphitheatre that it is. Uh, you know, you're standing just slightly below the lawns when you're looking at the cattle. So the cattle look exceptionally well on it. And I think good cattle do look exceptionally well on the lawns in Balmore. And uh, so in, in 2008, actually, um, had a quite a good young cow and I decided that we'd, br we'd bring her to Balmoral and, and uh, that it started there. So we showed an 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 and 14. And we'll move on to, to uh, 12, obviously was was a very special one when you won the overall championship with what was then a 15-month-old heifer and uh, the rest, as they say, is history really. That was, of course, um, Millbrook Ginger Spice, her first go. Yeah, well, we actually won it the year before that as well, would you believe it, with Millbrook Celine. Okay. Uh, so we won four, we won four Balmorals in a row. We actually won 11, 12, 13, and 14. And then we won the interbreeds and in the, we won the five interbreeds, including the junior with, uh, we actually won the six interbreeds. We won the junior with Florence when Celine won it as well. So, uh, Balmoral was very good. Uh, as I say, that I'm competitive by nature. So when it was a family holiday, it was always nice to go up and compete. And, uh, yeah, as I say, Celine won it the year before. Uh, we had her in the trailer actually with us going back up to Balmore when we had Ginger Spice. Uh, to say that I, I had picked Celine, I was showing Celine, I had all the showing Celine, Mark was showing Ginger Spice. Um, Ginger Spice, uh, maybe to give you a little bit of background about her, uh, when she was a younger heifer, she was good, but she wasn't spectacular. But there were times when you were heard and that you would actually stand to look at her and say, yeah, there is really something in this. It just had some little bit of X factor. Don't ask me what it was, but it just was there. And when she was weaned in September, I would have pulled her out and put her into a shed and uh, with two or three other heifers and started to feed her. And the, the other heifers were probably being fed for sale maybe in the autumn. And my dad and my brother Mark says to me, what are you doing with that in there feeding it? I said, I don't, I don't know, I said, but there's something in it. And I says, I want to see what's there. So, uh, and as you say, the breast probably is history. Don't, as Look, Mark was telling me that I didn't know it was there, and I have to agree with him. I probably wouldn't have said that you would have created in terms, but by definitely, that was October, by definitely by March, we could actually see her coming into a really, really good beast. And I'd say a fortnight before Balmoral, I said, it wouldn't surprise me totally, but Christine Williams had put this heifer over the cow, and I said it maybe half in jest, not really believing it, but it turned out to be the case, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and as I said, the rest is history. And some say that she may be one of the best cows that they've ever seen. And uh, is she still alive, uh, William? No, no. Um, she we lost her due to an injury there about three years ago or so. Okay. okay. And just remind me of, or remind our listener of the the background of her of her breeding. On the sire side, it would be Willage Fantastic. Um, what I would say is probably one of the greatest bulls that the breed has ever had in terms of producing quality stock. Uh, on the dam side, she's out and out Millbrook bred in terms of that her mother was Millbrook baby. 
and she was from a French cow called a uh, no, sorry, Milbrook Baby was from Nightingale, which was a talent cow. But Baby herself then was from a bull called Brook Mill um, Taurus, and he was bred here on the farm as well. So she's her both her grandparents, both her mother and her grandfather were bred on the farm. Okay, um, and, and she went on, as you said, to win it uh, uh, two more occasions two, following two years. Uh, three on the bounce and one the three interbreeds on the bounce and that's that's got to be a record for one cow, is it? Yeah, yeah, we believe that she's the only animal in in the history of the royal shows that has won three consecutive um, interbreeds as well as three consecutive championships. It's look, it's, uh, I'm a competitor by nature. Some would say if you win it once, why would you ever bring a champion back? I'm a kind of having been a sportsman all my life would feel that the showing is my sport, so. I would always say that uh, what what they've won, you can never take it away, and sure. you know. So sure. it, it was nice, and the challenge was there to bring her back each of the three years. The second year she went back, well, she won the last ever show in the old showgrounds, and then she won the first ever in the new showgrounds. Uh-huh. So then maybe that gives her a little bit of history as well. And she was under some some impressive breed judges, as you said, Christine Williams, the first year, and I think uh, who else was it put you up the next two times? Some well-known breeders, if I remember right. Well, I mean, uh, um, I suppose we all have our, our, our bit of a legacy within her, and, and uh, I would say that she, the planets may be aligned for her because you had uh, Christian Williams, of course, of the Willowage Herd, you had uh, Stephen Illingworth of Glenrock, and then you had Bruce Goldie of, of the Goldie. So I, I don't think if, if there was serious issues within her, uh, then them three people would have definitely uh, found it. Now, look, at I, I, I give... Huge credit to Christine for putting her up the first day. She had um, the balls to do it. Like putting up young heifer was a big thing. The heifer probably maybe didn't show herself to the best of her ability in terms of that. Uh, when we were training her, we didn't want to knock that real X factor over, you know. So I kind of gave instructions to my brother uh, when she's walking, don't pull the halter or she'll stop. She was a, a very funny, she had her own little ways with her and uh, of course they were half around when they when he gave her a chop and the next thing it was a stall in the ring so mm. you just had to give her time maybe a minute or so now it, it sounds a long time in the ring and then just give her a little shake and away she goes again so <laughs> but uh, at, um she never put a foot wrong in in in, uh, in her show career and and uh, what a show career she had to be honest and i'm right in thinking the the um, interbreed is it's a panel of judges at balmoral isn't it the first year she won it was a panel of judges, uh, but the second year when we moved to the maze, they added four new breeds to the, so there was 17 uh, breeds then. I think they added the Irish Mild, uh, Shortler, maybe the commercial, and they added four new breeds to the, to the section anyway, and so they decided then to go for an in, one individual judge. Okay. And the, the second two years, uh, I think it was Colin Hutchinson, would he would it be right in saying that he showed a lot of commercials in, yeah. in his time down yeah, yeah, south yeah. or that? Uh, it was him that judged the first year, and then the second year would have been Harry Emsley. Of, okay. uh, Excellent. Yeah. Well, they're both, again, both renowned judges and, and great stocksmen. And, uh, uh, absolutely. absolutely. And she obviously went on to be a great breeder herself, and, and um, which is what it's all about, really, isn't it? And uh, you'll have taken a lot of embryos from uh, Ginger Spice. How many altogether, can you tell me? Uh, probably maybe about 30 altogether. Give or take, but uh, but you have to understand it is no really surprise that ginger spice actually ever came along because for you have to understand the DNA that's in myself, like you know. So I mean, 
first of all, I was I was steeped maybe in pedigree history, and I got a bit of a learning curve from my dad in terms of what a good beast is and the foundations of good cattle. Secondly, then I was uh, very competitive by nature. Uh, thirdly, then I was Irish, which so that means I was born with a chip on my shoulder. And uh, the lastly was that the more you beat me, the more I want to rise. So I mean, uh, I mean, there's no surprise that at some stage in my life, that I probably was going to breed a ginger spice, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, you certainly did. And as I said, she's a she's a legend in her in her own in her own right. And that you mentioned Christine Williams, Judge, and there, Christine and Paul, of course, uh, ended up with some of those embryos. How did that come about? Uh, that came about by by chance. Actually, I put two embryos into the Carlisle auction. Uh, I reserved them at two thousand pounds. Again, uh, the Graham uh, Rob Graham had come to me and bought some embryos prior to that, and I think it was Graham's Naomi had won the um, Red Ladies Championship on the same day. Uh, Heather Pritchard of of um, Carlisle there of H and H rang me to say that they hadn't ma- ma- met the reserve, and uh, to be honest, I was extremely disappointed and. Uh, I won't repeat what I said. So a week later, then I rang Christine and asked her would she buy the embryos and said I'd sell them very lucky to her. And, and uh, again, the rest is history. And, you know, I, uh, I was so, so pleased for them, to be honest, because of her association with Ginger Spice, you know, that uh, her breeding of, you know, that went on to do what she did. Yeah, well, she, what she did, of course, was uh, one of those developed into, for our listeners, into Willodge Post Spice across the world record-breaking price at a quarter of a million pounds and uh, an exceptional beast that she was. And did you realise she was that valuable? Obviously not at the time. Uh, well, I wouldn't say that I didn't because one of the purchasers who, uh, which would be Charlie, of course, mm-hmm. uh, was in Balmoral in 2013 and uh, maybe a little bit of bar talk or one thing or another, Sarah Miller, of course, asked me, Charlie wants to have a word. You know, I went down and Charlie said, Look, he said, you have, uh, you have a cracking limousine heifer there, so he says, He'll sell her to me. Mm-hmm. I says, She's not for sale, Charlie, thanks. And, and uh, he says, oh, I said, Don't make the mistake. Don't uh, ever think that there's no animal for sale. He says, Put her in price. <laughs> uh, I won't say the price of putting her, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, he didn't he didn't bite any on the day in question. Luckily for me personally, and I am um, so. He turned around and subsequently paid more for a half share in a, in a daughter. So I think, I think look, we've had a bit of fun over it since Charlie and I, and, and yeah. uh, he does ac- accept that I wasn't out of order and asked him what I asked him at the time. Charlie is some man, isn't he, there, uh, uh, willing to put his money where his mouth is, some, some fella? Oh, there's no doubt about it, but uh, I suppose... The one thing I would say is, the old adage is true, is that you're never told to learn, and a good education is never free. <laughs> No. And fair dues to Christian and Paul. They had another one in the same sale, I think, sale at, at, at 20,000 out of the other embryos as well. So did exceptionally well out of the, And of course, you had this tremendous carriage in just price with, with all these embryos. And well, what, what persuaded you to sell some of those embryos yourself, William? We actually had a breakdown of TB in the herd in 2015. And uh, it, it basically was down to, to uh, a financial thing. Look at it. I mean, a perfect storm had arisen in terms of. Um, my own time in life at that stage, I had children in college. Uh, my dad had the was in the throes of dementia in the last year or two. We had home help with him, which was quite expensive. So it was purely a financial decision that we, we sold them embryos at the time. 
But I suppose looking at it now, um, while it was a cloud at the time, there's always a silver lining to it in terms of that if them embryos weren't sold into the homes they were sold into and the good homes they were, uh, her legacy wouldn't be what she is. So I look upon that now as, as a silver lining. It's a blessing, yeah. 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 Let's, let's move on then to your limousine hood and to the now. How many limousine cows are you running now, William? About 30 cows. Well, are you still... Primarily those original families that you bought all that time back? Have you bought a few back in? No, I've, I've never actually, the only ever, the only other animal I've ever bought back in was the, actually the grandmother or the great grandmother of, of um, Ginger Spice, uh, a cow called Glantine in France off the Buttery in 2000. She was an old cow at the time, a 15 year old cow, and she was in, she was in the beef pen, and uh, I just thought that she had something maybe the breed could do with in terms of that she was tremendously flesh cow, uh, carried herself really well, just had a lot of real beef and attributes that I liked, and I mm. thought she could bring that into my herd. I would be happy to have it in the herd. So certainly did. Uh, um, but that then the Atlantic cow actually was, as I say, she was from Lagotri, but she was very old pedigree herself. Her father had won Paris in 75, so that's a really, okay. really old pedigree, you know. Sure, sure. And moving on again, Graham's Melody, you uh, um, uh, you mentioned a ginger spice daughter again. Would that be bought to, privately from you? Or? Yeah, no, we, we sold embryos to, to Robert Graham privately. And again, we were very happy that they were going to a very, very established home mm -hmm. uh, with very, very good stock people in terms of Jennifer and Drew Hislop were there at the time. Um, look at what... As I say, we were very happy that the embryos were going to a home that was uh, uh, had the ability to bring them out to the very best of their potential. And another another P, uh, this time Precious, the daughter of uh, Melody, went on and won this year's Royal Highlands Showcase for Robert Graham. So the Ginger Spice is still notching up the records, eh? Yeah, we think our legacy is, is still uh, to be finished, I think. Um, and look, we have two tremendous full sisters, actually, of Willard's Posh Spice here, with the very same genes in them, actually, we would have loved to get the two of them. Actually, were destined for Balmoral last year, but, but due to COVID, they didn't it, it didn't materialise. But um, we're looking forward to them, and we've I've no doubt I've no doubt that the legacy of Ginger Spice will still be written a lot of it. And, and, um, and I believe I think when we were speaking to uh, um, Archie and John McGregor at Allen Ford that they've uh, they've bought a young bull from you, and I think that's probably the same way bred again. Is certainly a Ginger Spice genetics. It, it's a ginger spice ball. It's, it's uh, a sort of Winfrey Park Lomo. Um, again, really, really nice calf. And uh, I know John told the story in the in his podcast. He rang me up asking me about a ball that he had seen online at an online sale and uh, asked me about the breeder, to be honest, as well. And I said, look, very, very straight, honest people, the bull would be what he is in the video. So he it transpired that he didn't buy the ball one way or another. And, and uh, I was chatting to him maybe a few days after, and I says, uh, I told him that I had a nice calf myself, and I asked him would he take him over and bring him to Carlisle. The problem with the pedigree here at the time was that Lomo would not have had good figures here in terms of an internal figure, you know, uh -huh. and it would have affected the sale of him. So I thought just because of the ginger spice line, it might actually be an interesting, he might be an interesting bull for Carlisle. So, he was sent to John and Archie, again, lifetime family friends, uh, on the proviso that if they liked the ball after a month, they could, they could buy him, and, and that's what transpired. And John certainly seemed quite excited about him anyway. And 
uh, you've recently been elected onto the Irish Limousine Society Council. Congratulations. I gather that was a bit of a, a foot race to get in there, was it? Uh, two of the things that I enjoy in pedigree breeding, one is not only the breeding of the cattle shown as well, uh, but it's actually the politics within the breed. And I think if you have if you have things to say, you know, and you want to put your mark on the breed, there's no better place to do it than at the council table. You know, mm -hmm. you can talk all you like outside it, but at the end of the day, the decisions are made at the council table. So I had been previously on council before for 10 years, um, and I had... Uh, Got to the level, actually, I was president of the Irish Limousin Society for a two-year period. So I was vice president for three and president for two. Right. But again, it was a family issue. Uh, at that stage, my children were coming into teenage years. My wife was working. So I decided to step away from the council at the time and uh, concentrate on being, for all intents and purposes, a taxi driver, stroke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We've all been there. Uh, stroke parent for a few years. And, and uh, to be honest, it's a time... I wouldn't uh, swap for anything. And, oh. and uh, so, look at their rear now. Most of them are through college. The youngest boy, Oliver, he's not yet now. But um, so, it, I have maybe a little bit of more time now to get. It, uh, I wasn't happy really with some of the stuff that um, really around the marketing of the breed at the, at the, at, for the last couple of years. So I've decided to try and go back onto council. I tend to say things and. Uh, I tend to be a person that tries to act on it rather than just say it. Uh, so I did put my name forward again for for the council and, and was delighted to be some of the comments that I probably made reflected with some of the breeders. So I was delighted to go back on and actually really to work on the, on the levers of power within the society and, and try and contribute both my experience and what it, where I could see the society going for the breed. Having been, been elected back onto council, it, it, of course, it's a great honour to be able to serve the breeders of, of Ireland and uh, bring that bit of experience back to it. I was actually asked to be chairman of the breeding subcommittee. Uh, again, we're looking at a number of different areas for the, the development of the breed. We see the expansion of dairy being huge in Ireland, and of course, uh, so we're actually trying to make sure that uh, parts of our breed and parts of the bulls that we sell actually really suit the dairyman. So we're looking at a short gestation, easy calving part of the breed. We're using ICBF, the database, to identify the sires that are uh, delivering in this field. Of course, you have some of the English bloodlines like Caprico, Ereval would be very noted for that. And uh, other sires in the past, Hatcliffe, Hercules and, and others. Uh, not forgetting, of course, the main function of the limited breed itself, which would be the terminal aspect of the breed. Again, originally the limited breed would have been known as the carcass breed. So we're trying to identify the really bulls that are delivering on the terminal aspect as well, and then the maternal aspect as well. So it's a very exciting time for to be on the society in relation to deliver this. Um, we're working with our industry partners, both our DI companies and in with in conjunction with ICBF, the Irish Cattle Breeding Federation, who have the they have the database and they've, they've collected a huge amount of data on limousine genetics over the last number of years. So we're hoping to use that. We now are lucky we have people on board on this, in the society to be able to both uh, ask the proper questions in relation to the database and get and be able to decipher the answers. We have a new CEO in Rona Murphy. He has great experience in animal uh, breeding companies. He's, he's also worked with uh, Weatherby's. So he understands genomics. We've also Dr. Alan Kelly from the Castle Herd. He's a lecturer in animal science in UCD. So 
look, we have great experience on the council in, in, in that area to be able to deliver for us. And uh, in fairness, um, it's, it's great to be back working with the council. From my own perspective, having joined the society again, I think pedigree breeding has moved on hugely. Where originally we would have been able to see what's on the outside of the animal, now as breeders we can actually have a look at really what's on the inside of the animal yeah. in terms of uh, genotyping. And this is a very important tool to be used in making decisions for breeding. We're beginning to learn and to understand myostatins, be it the NTs, be it the Q genes, what they deliver for the industry and how they're marrying into each other. So I think for any pedigree breeder not to understand the myostatins of his own herd and then to be able to use them correctly, I think this is the challenge for us all going forward. So as I said originally, we can we could always see what's on the outside of the cattle, but now we're actually getting a, a look at the inside. But the more these genotypes and uh, we understand our understandings of myostatins and all, how they deliver for and um, what they deliver in terms of profit in the industry is going to be very important for us as breeders. I would say that it would be as a breeder, if it's actually not right that we use a stock bull that's not genotyped at this point in time. Mm. I think a, a picture of an animal is a snapshot in time. A pedigree is is uh, it lasts a lifetime, you know. So it's it, it's very very important that we understand the whole aspect of the animal, if, particularly if it's a seed stock animal. Would I, a simple question? Would there be an antagonism between the some of the genotypes that are that are desirable versus the actual uh, animal as we see them on the outside, uh, William, or, or are the two marrying up quite nicely? We'll get, obviously get a better picture of this as as time goes on. I think it, this is the challenge for us as as breeders, as a council, as societies, and and uh, you know as the overall industry. There, each of the myostatins deliver uh, very strong, uh, uh, you know, very strongly in areas. But it's to try and marry them, and and uh, I think each of the myostatins carries something that profitability in a certain area. But one is an antagonist to the other, so it's trying to marry all that, and it's trying to identify what you want within your own herd, you know, that you can deliver and particularly what you want for your customers. So, I mean, if you were, if you were selling your bulls to a dairy customer, you don't want a Q gene in your herd, you know, you want the 94L and, you know, again, the same as if, if you're deliver if you're delivering to the suckler farmer, well, then you want a bull that'll be able to produce that weight gain and shape as well. So you're, you're going to be looking for that bit of Q gene in it. So it, all of the genes have their own place in the marketplace. It's for us as breeders to, to identify them and to find where their niche is, you know. As you said, William, exciting times and, and a huge challenge for us all ahead and and, uh, and uh, an education that we all need to, to buy into. So that, that's that's um, great to hear that that's going, uh, going, going down that route. It is. And uh, even, even if we look at, at the marketing of our cattle, you know, and if we look at even COVID times in the last year and a half, how the marketing of our cattle have changed, the way the, way the online markets have really developed, um you have not only online markets you have you have uh we can but we can see through facebook and through other areas be it lsl or martai or whatever these online auctions that, that are taking place now we can we can have a look at we can we can have a look and we can bid for cattle all over the world now at this point in time so that has hugely changed if we take a look at our catalogs you can 
not only see in print what the animal is, but there's photographs, there's videos of the cattle now going up or whatever. So I, I can see the marketing of the pedigree livestock changing significantly and particularly from a national and international point of view hugely and the buying of them cattle being online, people don't have to leave their own homes to buy cattle now, yeah. you know. So totally. that's, that's a big, big positive for us going forward. Totally changed worlds too. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a great marketing tool to have all that data there, especially in these uncertain times. And I probably got to ask you this question, has Brexit made a bit of a difference to your market, do you think there, whether you can get the cattle back in, in, into to the, the Scotland? and, and or uh, At the France? moment, not. Uh, for our spring sales, we did have to hold cattle for 45 days after they were bought. Um, I think probably what has made maybe a bigger impact on our breed is the fact that we've actually used English pets over the past uh, decade and that when the English originally and Scotch breeders started to come over, they were buying something different. They were buying a genetic with a French line or out of a French line of cows or something, uh, you know, so they were buying a different genetic. Because we've, we've gone down the road of using a lot of British genetics, we don't have that at the moment. So. We find, look, and this is my personal view, is that I find that we've lost maybe a bit of that market share. And I think that there is an opportunity for us as a society and as breeders within that society, actually, to um, get back into that more maternal aspect of the breed. Hence our trip to France. Uh, we're looking then to, to work with French again. And as you know, we've about 2,400 members. Most of them would be small herds, up to yeah. four or five cows. So a lot of AI would be used on our national herd, our national pedigree herd. And uh, we can make progress in that manner, you know. Sure. Let me move on to something a little bit, uh, uh, I won't say controversial. What's this about uh, raffling off uh, embryos? What's that malarkey about? Where did that idea come from? You've been, you've raffled a few, I, I believe, over the last... A raffle too, actually, it is... Uh, I've seen uh, some of the commercial boys do it there over the Christmas period or whatever, and I had a few embryos sitting in the tank, and I still have a few embryos sitting in the tank, and I says, oh, just look at it, uh, maybe I'll try, I'll just try it, and sure, if, uh, if I get it sold over a week, sure, so be it, you know. Um, I, didn't, I didn't actually, to be honest, expect the response, and I think it was 22 minutes we had the, the numbers sold out, and uh, we had, I suppose, a few people that would have come in early and that we missed. So we sort of had to run a second one just to clear up that. And look at it, to be honest, we could have won a third, we could have run a third and fourth one, but it wasn't. I think the first uh, one, the first one was that, was that actually ginger spice embryo in the first? It was actually a ginger spice embryo, yeah. And that's yeah. the one that Pat Greeny went on, is it? Is he going to start himself a, a limousine herd based on that one, Kay? Pat has subsequently sold in H&H &H to John McGregor. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Good. Well, Pat, look at Pat would be alone to himself, and uh, a, a very good friend of mine for a long time actually would have been in Balmoral actually the time Ginger Spice won. Uh, so would be a, again a family friend and a very very good friend, and uh, just a great character to have around as well. I think there's a, a story maybe the difference between myself and my father would, as I say, I probably would have been a lot more competitive than my dad. My dad would have been a lot more gentlemanly and, you know, would have been very, very well respected, but then he didn't compete. <laughs> but uh, Pat said to one of my competitors, I think after we win in the second Balmoral, uh, did you congratulate William? And his, knowing that he'd get a court reply from the same person he asked, the reply came back fairly quickly and it was, uh, 
No, his father was a gentleman, but I don't know where he got such a mongrel of a son. So <laughs> I, I think that that sums up the court and trust of show one if, if anybody wants to hear it, you know. So, I might uh, sign by you then as a self-confessed mongrel. Excellent. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I like that. And just going back to the the, the raffle thing, I kind of got it in my head. Maybe it's a, it's a is it a, a a tax loophole in there that you no, sell, no, you can sell no. raffle tickets and not and, and 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 rather than livestock. No, maybe it's just an Irish thing that the Irish love love a gamble. It, it was it was look, and I was given actually every breeder, be it big or small, the opportunity actually to get a line of uh, something off the cow that actually bred the world priced heifer you sure, know sure. and it was nothing more than that and uh, it wasn't actually big or small everybody had the same opportunity so there's no going to anybody's head or anything else it was sure. as i say it just was a, a huge success to be honest i'm just pulling your leg there i am willing. and somebody says what if, what if the embryo doesn't hold and i said there's the mouse said when he when he broke his two tough cheese you know <laughs> uh, indeed been moving on from the cattle your personal life you played quite a bit of gaelic football i think that's quite a vicious sport that and uh did you, did you not coach a bit after that maybe i played and coached yeah um again as i say i was competitive by nature played gaelic football at uh adult level right up to my mid-30s or whatever right. we had quite a good team in the town at the time we went to a senior final which would be a high enough standard. Um, unfortunately, we lost it, but uh, and never got back to one since. But uh, and then I coached for a good few years as well. My daughter, one of my Florence, my second daughter, she plays and is quite athletic and quite a good footballer. She plays actually. She played actually at a higher level than I did. At right. underage, she played for the county team as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. and then uh, my other one of my sons, Oliver, the youngest son, he's actually. A very, very good Irish dancer. Okay. Uh, I have to claim that comes from the mother's side, to be honest. Uh, I have two left feet and I, <laughs> I've, I seen openly, you, I've seen you dancing, William. <laughs> I openly admit that, yeah. So, uh, but uh, he actually was fifth in the world in Irish dancing at one wow. stage. And, and, and he he was Leinster and um, second and third in Ireland over the years. So he's looking forward. He's he's hoping to travel with Riverdance at some stage. So, wow. Um, um, Competitive like yourself, then, William, by the sound of it? Uh, yeah, me, me, me wife actually used to go out to me when, being like all parents, we used to have races with the kids. And, uh, of course, I could never let them win. It was just a competitive streak in me, and she was given out to me. But now the other, the shoe has completely torn. <laughs> and it comes round and goes round, doesn't it? Well, it's it the circle out. of life, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, you won the very last Balmoral in, with, with Nelenia, that be right, in 2019, another heifer, and... Uh, I can hear in the background that you sound like you're gearing up to have another pop at it to defend your crown uh, this uh, this September. Is that right? Uh, no, actually, we can't go this September. So oh. it's not open to the southern cattle. Be oh. it, uh, I don't know whether it's a Brexit or a COVID thing. Um, either way, I think look at it. It's a it's a tuned down Balmoral, and it's great that it's running. And mm. whether we ever get back to it again or not, I don't know. But I would have loved to have another crack at it. Um, we definitely would have loved to have a crack at it in 2020, purely because I think uh, Naughty Spice or Nicky Spice, there were two heifers off Ginger Spice, were two tremendous cattle. Like There's no doubt about it, they were two tremendous cattle. And uh, yes, we won in 2019 with Nelenia. Um, again, probably would be a throwback to an older type limousine, but uh, it's horses for courses, the judge on the day, 
Dougie McBeath, of course, would like his females feminine, yeah. would would not be on the commercial side of cattle. So we felt that we had a really good heifer to suit uh, Dougie, you know, and uh, again, she went on, she won her, the junior female, the junior, and then she went on to win the breed championship and the junior interbreed at the show, and she was just pipped for the overall of the show. Right, okay. And uh, having said that, look, there was nobody actually happier that she was picked for the overall of the show than myself. And and in mm -hmm. fairness, she was beaten by a very worthy winner in, in, a, in a really good shot on cow. Mm -hmm. It was Danny Wilder that was judging, and I, I think he did an excellent job, to be right. honest. Yeah. Yeah, another well-respected judge there. And, yeah. and it doesn't sound like you've hung up your, your comb and clippers just yet. There's a few more shows left in you by the sound of you, so hopefully we'll all get out on that show circuit there, and I'll, I'll cheer you on, and we'll catch a beer. Please God, look at him. I'm, uh, I know at this stage, at 56 years of age, I'm in the second half at this stage. So, uh, But I do hope to show, in 2019 when Elenia won, uh, Gareth Small had a really, really good heifer. Happened to be in the same class to Baron Oxy Daisy. And we were standing second for quite a while. Uh, and then look at typical show, and he just turned us at the last second. From where I was standing, I thought she was more Dougie's beast. I could see why uh, he would have pulled in Gareth. Um, I know Gareth was disappointed, but at the same time, there were two different types of cattle. Gareth Heffer went on to be reserve champion at the Highlands, but a, re a really good beast in her own right as well. And another, another great cattleman, great young breeder, you know, very, very capable, to be honest. And, and uh, had a couple of capable comrades with him, to be honest, and Thomas Ellingworth and Stephanie Dick. You know, so we're certainly hoping to speak to to uh, certainly Gareth in the next in one of our, our oncoming podcasts. Uh, and earlier you spoke of uh, Carlisle, which of course is the premier sale of the limousines in the UK. And do you get over there um, regularly to be buying or to be just checking out what's going on? Uh, well, I tend to travel to Carlisle at least once a year, if not uh, twice a year, to the bull sales um, or to the Red Ladies have for sale. It really keeps you informed of the new genetics coming through. Of course, we've used a lot of British genetics in the last 10 years. So uh, along with that, we meet friends. I, I travel with Martin Davis and, and uh, David Coogan, and it's always a, a very enjoyable and social outing as well. So mm -hmm. look, at, it's it's good to be informed, but it's also, it's always educational when you go to Carolina, I think. You know, it's a huge, huge venue for a limousine cattle. Indeed, indeed. Uh, William, I really appreciate this. I've taken probably enough of your time and... Uh, I'm sure you've got plenty of other things to get to get back to and giving me your time, but much appreciated. And I'm sure our listeners will enjoy hearing a little bit about uh, the great herd you got there and, and, and that legendary cow, Ginger Spice, and all the rest of the things that go with it. Thank you very much, Andy, and uh, thanks to all your listeners. Thank you. Well, cheers. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, which was kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice. Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.